45 of the Shark Bites podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Rayo, but you can call me Patsy the Angry Nerd. And I am here this week with a very special guest. Uh, I actually received her book uh, about a few days ago, uh, so I haven't gotten a chance to read the whole thing. And it is uh, definitely a good read, and it is definitely uh, a nice long read as well. Uh, just shy of 500 pages, which I like. And I am here today... Uh, with the author of The Silence of Scheherazade, uh, Daphne Suman. Daphne, thank you so much for joining us all the way from across uh, several continents uh, in Greece. Well, hello. It's, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm very, very happy to be part of the show. Yeah, and this, this I, I like the fact that um, I have so many uh, opportunities to interview uh, writers because there's, if I have, uh, you know, my way, I'm usually generally just sticking to, you know, like the the, the usual horror or, or stuff like that that I'm used to, like you know, my comfort foods, for lack of a better term. But getting to see different genres, different styles, different writers, uh, has been real eye opener for me, and I really enjoy getting to see all these different uh, writing styles and different points of view and. Uh, we talked a little bit uh, off air and I was saying how I started the book and I really enjoy your writing style, but you said you've heard different things about that. Yes. Um, well, a lot of people found the beginning difficult and I intentionally made the beginning difficult. It's like a gate. And I actually put the, the chapter is called the gates of paradise. So if you can cross that gate and then make it to the second chapter, not chapter, but the part, because there are five major parts. If you can make it to the second part through the gates of paradise, then you understand because no new characters are, in, are introduced or maybe one or two side characters are introduced. But all the characters, all the cast, um, you get to know in the first part in the gates of paradise. And for a reader... Of course, for a reader who is um, not very familiar with Ottoman history, somebody who's not familiar with the geography of uh, today's Turkey, the names, the languages, and what's really happening in, at that time, early 20th century we're talking about, um, you have to follow a lot of things. And as a reader, I love books like that, that you start and you don't know who is who, but like we trust the author that everything will be revealed and I will understand this story at the end. So I wanted my readers to trust me that eventually everything will be clear. And by the time you finish the book, you're going to go back, hopefully, and go through that gate again and everything will be so familiar. And you're going to say, oh, the beginning I thought it was difficult, but it's not. It's actually everything was already told to me from the very beginning. That's like I try to write for the second time reading. I know it's a huge book, um, but I like to read books two times, three times sometimes if I like a book. And I like readers to do that because as authors, we put so much effort 
with all the details and and everything being like really consistent with one another and there's also the juicy parts that you only realize when you're reading the second time or maybe maybe the third time so yes. i write for the second reading or for the third reading more than the the first time reader let's say and i think that you know when you're reading a book uh, especially something that, you know, is in depth and so detail oriented as as your book is, you know, there are things that you're going to miss on a first read through that you will pick up on a second read through. Absolutely. And, you know, to kind of touch on what you were saying earlier about the, uh, you know, learning about the, the characters and the geography and like the places it's like, you know, some folks might look at that as like, oh, well, I don't know anything about, you know, you know, Ottoman history and I don't know anything about Turkey. And it's like, yeah, but do you know anything about Middle Earth before you started reading Lord of the Rings? Uh -huh, exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, it's the only difference between those places and, you know, your book. It's like this is set in a real place, a real time. You can go and look at these things and learn about these events that inspired, you know, the 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 events of this book. So, and I have to say, like, one of the things I like so much, I almost describe, I would, I would describe your, your writing style as almost poetic with the amount of detail and attention and the, the language that you use to describe things, you know, smells and sounds and, uh, especially the, uh, what I thought was especially impressive and, uh, you know, talking about the fires and everything that was going on at that point, you know, talking about, and it, and it 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 definitely hits your emotions like cuz we were talking a little bit off air about you know mm -hmm. cats very quickly and you know there's a line about you know cats being trapped in alleys and it's like ah oh, like i oh yeah like i imagine you know as a cat person yourself that was a a difficult line to even think yeah. of let alone put down on a final draft exactly and you know when you think about like there is a the great fire of smyrna and so my book is based on the great fire of smyrna it's a historical fact it really happened um who started the fire why did it start blah blah it's been still discussed in turkey and in greece even though it's been exactly 100 years now um but the thing is we never think about what really happened inside the flames in the city when the city was being burned or when it's burning like what happened to the people the houses the furniture the cats the birds the horses and everything was being burned and we kind of in the discussion of all the political historical let's get our facts right things we actually forget that actually cats were trapped in the alleys and horses were burning and they jumped to the sea half burned half um sinking into the sea and of course same thing for all the residents of the city they needed to flee their homes and like now we are living in the middle of the fires this is 100 years after uh, the great fire of smyrna everywhere in the world i mean siberia is burning as we speak it's mm -hmm. like unimaginable it's siberia like the end of the world for me and there's a fire there um so with the australian fires the uh, the f fires in the amazon fires in turkey fires in greece and so if there's so much fire and now the tr the reality of fire is so in front of us because we see everywhere like animals burned, houses burned, our memories gone. And now um, what I was doing during writing this book, 
becoming our everyday reality, we start to think of ourselves inside the fire. And that's what I try to do. What if you are in there? How would you feel? How would you smell? What would you smell? Um, those are the details I wanted to add into the into the story. And I will say that, you know, as I'm reading this, like, and obviously it wasn't intentional because, you know, you wrote this, you know, I'm guessing, you know, you started writing this several years ago. But one of the um, one of the images of the, the children, you know, desperately clinging to the sides of boats, like trying to climb up anchor chains and everything. Um, it evoked the image of the planes leaving uh, Afghanistan with people hanging on the outside of them. You know, obviously you didn't do that on purpose because this book, you know, you obviously this is just coming out. So it's been in production for a long time. But like it's it shows that the desperation to escape certain situations like it's uh, it's not unique to this particular day in time or this particular moment in time it's a universal thing like people are clinging literally clinging to hope exactly yeah escape their situation and uh obviously yeah uh, actually the when i um i the book is written originally i wrote the book in turkish and it's been published in turkey uh, in 2016 and right after that on the same day actually in Greece so it was a very happy event for me in Greece and Turkey um, because it's an objective attempt to look at the Turkish Greek war and what happens at the end of the Turkish Greek war in 1922 Greece loses the war Turkey wins the war Turkey takes um, the control of the city of Smyrna and like at the end of every war the um, the citizens of the losing side, meaning the Greek citizens of Smyrna, they have to flee. They have to become refugees and because the, the enemy has captured their city, right? So they have to escape. And what they do is exactly what they were doing today, What when uh, Taliban took over Kabul in Afghanistan, is they were trying to get into the ships that are leaving Smyrna. And it's always the ships of the great powers. What ships were leaving Smyrna that day? It was the British ships. It was the French. It was the Italian ships that are leaving because they're like, okay, we're done here. Okay, the victory is Turks. The city belongs to the Turks and we're leaving. And then the, the children and women and whoever was left in the town, they were jumping to the sea, swimming in and begging the ships to take them. Exactly the same scenes we see um, with the, of course, the technology changing, culture changing, um, but the desperation remaining the same and the fear and hope, fear and hope, they always come together because you're so scared, but you're also so hopeful to hang on to something. And if you die, you don't care because you're going to die anyway if you stay. That's the thing they're thinking. Yeah. So a lot of people wrote me when the Afghanistan scenes were actually going on in social media. A lot of my Turkish writer, Turkish readers wrote me and said, look, it's happening just like you described in your book. It's a new Smyrna that's happening right now in, um, in Afghanistan. And that was so true. And you pointed out too. Yeah. And it's, you know, it just shows that, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, it's the, uh, you know, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And it's just like this awful cycle of things. You know, it's like 
your book takes place in you know 1905 and this is 2021 116 years later and it's the exact same scene it's like you're saying like these people are choosing it's like well i can hang you know hang on to the side of this this uh this plane and you know maybe i have a shot you know but if i stay here i know i'm gonna die you know or i can stay in this burning city or i can you know try and swim my way towards a ship and maybe somebody will take pity on me you know it's the same situation you're just you're choosing uncertainty and hope over absolute you know certainty of death and it's so tragic and like you can feel the desperation in your writing like you can feel uh like the the emotional impact like because like i said about the the cats and you mentioned the horses like it's when people read about disasters or war or things like that it's it's abstract it's like oh well some people died no big deal you know because it's not you don't have a personal connection but when you start bringing in animals or children generally animals um people start getting more of an emotional attachment to what's going on and you know especially if you're telling the story from someone's specific point of view uh and like living vicariously through them that's when you really like get that connection and i think that's uh part of the power of of this opening segment of the book. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I really tried that. And you haven't finished the book, but there will be. So the book begins at the end, like the ending is the beginning, like they say in a famous series of Dark. Um, so the ending is the beginning in this book. Um, and of course, People, when I first wrote it, um, I was more thinking the readers in Turkey and the readers in Turkey and in Greece, they know when I talk about a fire and when I talk about Smyrna or today's Izmir, when I talk about that, they all immediately know that it's the great fire of Smyrna. And now I have a global reader in front of me. And so in the translation, we added a little bit more information of what's going on. What is this big fire? Um, So we begin at the end, the book ends with the fire, and our narrator, our narrator is her name is Shehrazat, um, and it's the the story of her silence because she doesn't talk for a hundred years, and at the end of her hundred years of silence, she decides to tell us the story of what really happened that night. And I thought that was such a brilliant touch, because, you know, as famous as some of the stories are not a lot of people are familiar with who Scheherazade is in you know uh, mythology if you want to call it that you know she was the one who told the thousand and one Arabian Nights you know the Alibaba and the 40 thieves Sinbad Aladdin like all these stories and for you to have a character named Scheherazade which obviously I'm pronouncing it much different than you are no no you're doing you're doing great <laughs> um to have her be silent and not speak. Like, I thought that was like a really powerful message. It's like, you have these stories and this, this, uh, you know, this immense wealth of trying to articulate how I want to say this. Like it's, she has this story inside her that could easily go on for a thousand and one nights, (laughs) but has, 
chosen to keep silent and not, you know, not speaking for a hundred years. Like that is, it's so, it's, it's such a, an interesting way to like, you could have named her anything. Like she could have had any name, but to name her Shahrazad and be silent. Well, you know, the thing about Shehrazad, um, she's the narrator of, like you said, one uh, thousand and one nights or Arabian nights as we um, know it. Mm -hmm. And her thing, her task is to tell a story every night. And if she doesn't tell a story every night, she dies. They are, the, um, the emperor will kill her. And so her task, in order to stay alive, she has to come up with a good story. And my Shehrazad, and Shehrazad is a is a is a, a woman's name in Turkey or in um, the Middle East. We use the name, so um, you can have a Shehrazad, Aunt Shehrazad, or more like a grandmother Shehrazad, older name. Um, so my Shehrazad chooses to be silent, which means um, which means death, because a silent Shehrazad is is the metaphor for death. So this story is the story of death in a way because it's the death of the cosmopolitan Smyrna. It's the death of um, the cosmopolitan world where we used to live together side by side um, and then it, that way of living died and nationalism or national states took place in this 20th century. So in a way I'm trying to refer to that death um, but at the same time it's the silenced history, like the, the pieces of history we never talk, like the one you were saying. In the abstraction, we know certain things. A happened, B happened, but they're all in the abstract. Like when you actually make it a story, you give the third dimension to that abstract thing and it becomes the concrete. Then you realize by abstracting something, you have always silencing the people who lived it. You make it a myth. You make it history, you make it part of history book, but then it's silencing the people. What really happened? What did they go through? Uh, how the experiences were similar to your experiences today is silenced. So that's why the silence of Shehrazad. And see, that that brings me to a, a, another question, like something that I hadn't uh, thought of until like, you know, we started discussing this. Now, I am a product of the American school systems where history is told in a specific way, depending on where you go to school in the country. Now, I'm I'm in the Northeast. I'm in Massachusetts. So we learned about things a little differently, like, say, we learned about the American Civil War a little bit differently than you might learn about it in, say, Alabama or Texas. Mm -hmm. Um we learn about, you know, the history of slavery a little different than you might learn about it in, say, Mississippi. But we still tend to gloss over a lot of the things that happened. Um, there was a, a series that HBO put out last year, I believe it was, uh, called Watchmen, based on a series of comic books. And the opening scene of that series uh, takes place in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, where uh, a black neighborhood was utterly destroyed by 
a, a whole group of white people, including police. Uh, it was actually bombed from the air by airplanes because it was a successful business, uh, a successful area. The folks there were doing well, but because it was such a racially motivated like mm -hmm. crime, it was to the point where people who survived through this and went to the authorities, they were the ones who were arrested by the very people who were there committing these atrocities. That's not something we learned about in school. So my question is, you know, you being in a, a, a European, you know, growing up in, in, in Europe, is this something, you know, the, 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 the history of Smyrna, is this something that you learn about in school or do you learn about it like, hey, this happened and that's all you need to know? Or like, do you really get into it? Or do they kind of, you know, gloss over a lot of the details? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I grew up in Istanbul, in Turkey, and I went to school in Turkey. And of course, being the this winner of the mm -hmm. war between Turkey and Greece, I mean, every history book, every official history glosses over. That's their job. And we had... Um, and if you are the winner, if you're on the winning side of the war, you always get, um, you never get the stories of the atrocities that your side did, right? You are, because you're we the have, powerful we, side. We have a saying here, the winners write the history books. Exactly, exactly. So, um, so what happened in Turkey is that as if Turkish army, and, and not as if Turkish army really wins the war, war and they took over Smyrna, but as if like, nothing happened to the civilians, nothing happened to the children, you know. All of a sudden, Greek people of Smyrna disappeared. We're talking about 80,000 people of the Greek citizens of Smyrna. All of a sudden, they disappeared. Oh, where did they go? They went to Greece. Um, and then I, I came, to, I got married to a Greek guy, so I moved to Greece. And then I heard the story from the other shore, across, like literally from the other side of the same ocean, uh, I heard the story and it's all about how much massacres took place on the, um, on the days when the Turkish army captured the city and before um, Greece was able to send ships to get the refugees into Greece. That was uh, almost an 18, 20, 25 days, humongous massacres and the burning of the entire city. So we learned, which was completely wrong, that Greeks burned the city before they left Smyrna. And when I started doing research for this book, I realized that it is technically impossible because the Greek army was already gone by the time the city was, city was burning. So it was most likely the Turkish army put the city on fire, but we never learned that. I mean, that's like a huge missing chunk mm -hmm. of information from the past and also a misleading thing. You, you believe that, oh, it's them who burned the city. Then I looked, but they left like a week ago. It can't be the army. They already sent them all to Greece. Only civilians were left in town, only women, children and very old people. So um, a lot of gaps in my mind were filled as I was doing the research and I tried to put all these things. Of course, in Greece, it's only the massacres. There is no other history. This is the reverse of glossing over. It's um, stimulating as much as you can so that you can hurt, uh, you remember forever what happened to your people in Smyrna. It's the other side of writing the history of the defeated yeah. is always about memory. and. 
I'm not saying it's objectively true either, but somewhere in the middle, there's the truth. And that's what I try to search. Yeah. And I would imagine that, you know, you would probably have to go to like outside sources for that. Now, I have never been to Europe, so I don't know how different things are, you know, uh, are presented there. But I know that here in the United States, we have Holocaust museums to talk about what Germany did during World War II. But you'd be hard pressed to find, you know, anything discussing, you know, again, the Tulsa massacre or, you know, redlining or, you know, different racial atrocities that, you know, Americans have have uh, committed over the years in our history. Like, we'll tell you about everybody else. And it's like, oh, did you see them? Oh, they're so bad. We'd never do anything like that. But it's like, yeah, like the, this, this and like there were people here when the Europeans got here. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's the it's the work of artists, it's the work of writers, it's the work of authors to talk about those people. Mm -hmm. um, it's not the work of the the power structures. That's not that's not how they function. So it's not it's illogical to ask for our you know governments and states to recognize and build the build the Holocaust museums for um, the Native Americans or for the Greeks or Armenians of Anatolia of Turkey. Um, they won't do it. It's yeah. against their nature, but we can do it. We yeah. are the we are the people of this land and we are open-minded enough to recognize the loss because the land, the geography, the earth lost something. And it's, it's in our lives, it's in our genes, it's in our consciousness. Um, so it's our job, I see it, to uh, remember, to make the museums through art, through literature. Yeah, to, to tell the stories, you know, uh, you know, there's so many, like uh, Picasso's Guernica, you know, like that's, that's an example of, you know, telling the stories of things that you saw. Yes. Um, there were... Uh, there's so many different a lot of times it's you know metaphorical it's like oh yeah there's some political commentary in this book or in this movie or in this you know comic whatever it happens to be because sometimes people are afraid to even just come right out and say this is what happens because that's not the stuff that gets popular and that's not the stuff that gets sold um so my question for you um you know because this is clearly something that you are very passionate about when did you decide to write this this book and why did you decide to make it all about uh, Smyrna? Um, it goes to another book. It goes back to the to another book called Middlesex. Middlesex is um, Greek American author Jeffrey Eugenides uh, wrote Middlesex, and it is mostly it's taking place in Detroit. It's a story of a family who migrates from the Ottoman Empire, and it's a Greek family. And the opening scenes of Middlesex is taking place in Smyrna. And that was an eye-opening uh, book for me to understand for the first time what I learned in my school history books in Turkey about Smyrna is now reflecting the truth. Because um, and it clicked all of a sudden. And when I read the chapters about Smyrna, about the fire of Smyrna, the Greek civilians trying to escape, jumping onto the boats and stuff like that, it so clicked. And I said, of course, it's like a family secret. You know, when you realize, when you find out about a family secret, everything all of a sudden 
um, finds its place in your mind. And that's what happened to me. Um, so I decided to write the book because Middlesex, it goes on to Detroit and the story uh, unfolds in America. But it, my, some part of my mind stayed in Smyrna and I said, oh, I wish, I wish there were more chapters about Smyrna. I wish he was writing more. And then I said to myself, wait a second, you can write it. Mm -hmm. You can create that world um, and you can write an entire book because that's the freedom of being a writer. You don't have to search for a book. You can write it. So that's how it started. I wanted to um, write a tribute to Mr. Eugenie. This is Middlesex. And I think that's that's uh, like definitely uh, uh, like you're saying, like this eye opening, um, you know, experience where you're like everything that I was told isn't the entire truth and it's definitely sugar-coated to make one side seem better you know it's like you know again I'll, I'll use america as a reference because that's what i'm familiar with uh it's like oh we went in and we liberated this country and we we did this and it's like did yeah, you so like you know iraq you know every, every everything that we've done in the middle east has been an issue um you know like there was a time where you know, back in the, the, the early late 70s, early 80s, when we were supplying weapons to Afghanistan to fight mm -hmm. the Russians, and then those same Afghans ended up forming the Taliban, you know, like so they were used then using the weapons that we gave them against us because I don't know what our foreign policy is sometimes. It doesn't make any sense to me. But, you know, yeah. When, you know what I'm, I try not to use the word we, um, and I, I advise you don't use it too, because it's not you. Right. Um, I, I stop, and it's, it's a habit, and I know it happens with, between me and my, my Greek husband, we kind of try to say you, me. Actually, we refer to the Turkish state, Greek state, American state, and it's not us. And if there's a we, we is you and me and my husband and, you know, the ones who are actually seeing things and who are standing against what the governments are doing. So it is we. And um, I took it very liberating for myself to detach myself from the activities of the Turkish state. And I, I don't call myself part of that we anymore. And I kind of always um, try to correct my husband when he says we as Greeks or as the Greek state. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that you are actually on the other side. Whatever is has been done to the Middle East, whatever has been done to Armenians and Greeks, I am on the other side. I am this on the side that is trying to correct the mistake, trying to recognize the loss, try to mourn for the loss. And the world is divided into, yes, we and them, but it's not on the basis of the nation states. Right, yeah, and that's something that you'll see a lot in uh, in certain places where like there's this very strong sense of nationalism. It's like, yeah, we're the best, you know, we're the, you know, and it's like, really not like you know there's a there's a lot that could be done that could be so much more helpful yeah well i i love that thing because um 
I love to write books. Most of my books that are in Turkish and they're coming in English soon, like next year and then the year after that, one year, every year there's going to be a new English book of mine. But I play with that idea of nationalism and I always have um, a surprise moment when you realize you're actually not from that nation that you think you're from. Mm -hmm. So like all your life, let's say you lived as a, as a Turkish person and then a family secret comes out um, under the light and you realize, no, actually you were Greek the whole time. And what happens then to you? I love to play with this idea. It, even as a child, I was curious about that. What if I wasn't? How can I be so sure that being a Turkish gives me A, B, C, D qualities? Mm -hmm. And what if I happen to be a, an Armenian baby, a Greek baby who was kind of mixed in the hospital to be like as simple oh. as that? And would like, um, so I like uh, playing with that idea and, and challenge it in a way because nationalism is such a new, such a recent invention of um, human society. Um, it's just the 20th century, late 19th century. Early, earlier than that, we have the empires and we have religions, okay, um, language bringing people together, but there is no such thing as a nation before that. Um, right. it's a, there's a, Benedict Anderson is a sociologist and he calls the nations imagined communities. We imagine our community and we call it the nation. Yeah, there's a... Uh quote from an astronaut and i'm forgetting who it was but you know he he was up in space and he's looking down on earth and he's like i don't see any of the lines that divide the countries up i don't see any of the the, the borders like you don't yeah. see when you're up in space like all you see is you know one one planet and i think that's that's excellent uh but to kind of touch on what you were just saying about like you know like you think you're you know, like in in your stories when you have your your characters, where it's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm I'm hardcore, you know, whatever, and it's like, no, it turns out you're not. Um, like there was a a rash of things that happened over the last couple of years where uh, these hardcore white supremacists were all getting DNA tests, and like it was coming back that like they have no European descent. It's all like sub-Saharan Africa, and like they're all <laughs> freaking out, and they didn't know what to do, and it was the best thing i've ever seen it's so, yeah white people are the best oh wait i'm not european oh what's going on like i don't know what to do now it's it was uh i honestly found it funny it is very funny we had a lot of same turkish politician turning out to be um greek and armenians and i think they're going to they're going to prohibit these genetic testings if it goes on like that i mean i did mine and then i had like 25 percent of Italian in my genes. The whole family was like, what's going on? Who is Italian in our family? <laughs> I haven't I haven't done one, but you know, I think I'd be interested to I'd be interested to to see where my family all breaks down. Like it's very interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's like you have unexpected results. Yeah. So I have to say that I like I said, I I, I have, I started the book and, you know, I didn't find it to be difficult to to get into. Um, and again, I love the way you describe things. And you can tell that there is, uh, you know, especially after talking to you, there is a passion and like an emotional connection, like a visceral connection almost to the subject matter that's going on. And like, it almost feels like 
like the way you're describing how you found out about, you know, the two sides of history and like what really happened, it's almost like you felt betrayed by, you know, almost like betrayed by your own people. Like, this is what I was taught. This is what you told me. And everything you said is a lie. Like, how can I, you know, try, like, I'm supposed to put my faith, you know, and we see this a lot over here as well. How am I supposed to put my faith in this government that is supposed to represent me and, you know, have my best interest in mind when you can't even tell me what happened 116 years ago? Yep. Yep. Oh, well, actually, we lost that long time ago. So I don't have that problem. How can I put my faith in the government? That's like, that's gone. So I'm free from that. Um, but I was surprised at myself. How did I believe in this narrative without questioning it? That was my thing, because I knew um, I never believed in nationalisms. I studied sociology. I was ready to deconstruct every social structure around me. I had all the tools to be able to deconstruct everything around me. And I believed in this narrative. Like, how did I never question what happened in Smyrna at, until the age, I don't know, 35, 36? And that kind of made me think there are so many people like me in Turkey right now. There are so many people who are thinking whatever, who are not even thinking about questioning the history. Um, yeah, and, I, and I think that's such a huge problem is, you know, like folks just blindly accept whatever facts are put in front of them. Like you're saying, you know, you have these critical thinking skills, you have all these tools at your at your disposal. And it's like, well, I never even thought about this. You know, like, like, I, I was thinking about this the other day, like, when I was younger, like, I would be told something in school. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. But why would this person not tell me the truth? And, you know, what we've been seeing, and again, I don't know how it is in, in Greece or in Turkey. But people will come out and it's like, here is a fact. And they're like, well, I don't believe that fact. And, you know, in my opinion, that's not how it's supposed to be. Like, there was something I saw recently where somebody was like, oh, 2,000 miles. That's not so far. I could do that probably in a day. And the person responded, no, if you were to drive 75 miles an hour nonstop, no stopping, no slowing down, 75 miles an hour nonstop, it would take you 26 hours. They're like, well, how do you know that? It's like, well, you divide 2,000 by 75. <laughs> And here's the math. It's like, well, I don't, you know, well, you're entitled to your opinion. I would just get up earlier so there would be more hours in the day. <laughs> get up earlier doesn't change the fact that it's still going to take 26 hours at 75 miles an hour to hit 2,000. And getting up earlier doesn't make a day longer. Exactly. You know what happened? I think people, well, first of all, they got like more and more stupid. But <laughs> aside from that, People got more and more, um, like it's something to do with loneliness. I, I have no other explanation, but the lonelier people get, the more they need to hug and embrace their opinions. And their opinions are becoming something like their children. So they hang on to their opinions as if their um, entire loneliness and detachment will be healed by defending the opinion. That's what's happening. Like you, you can go, um, against the, the reality in order to keep your opinion safe and always valid. And if you find people who think the same way as you online, then this just reinforces that you are correct. 
Yeah, that's the imagined community. You yes. have your new imagined community, and and they and it's a dangerous community. I I completely agree, and you know, and again, this is something I'm not sure how familiar you are with you know what's been going on. But we we touched a little bit off air about you know the whole COVID thing. Uh, we have folks over here who's like, well, I'm not going to take the vaccine because it's not FDA approved, and <laughs> they are. It's now FDA approved. Mm-hmm. Like, well, you have tattoos. Tattoo ink is not FDA approved. Like, there's a lot of stuff that you eat that is not FDA approved. Yeah. But they're just using that as an excuse. And recently, in the last couple of weeks, uh, folks have started taking ivermectin because they mm-hmm. heard someone on Fox News say, why aren't we taking ivermectin? So people are going and taking ivermectin, which is used to deworm horses. Yeah, I know. And they're going to livestock supply stores it's like is that generally where you get your medication it's like oh yes i need some human medication i will go to the pet store what is wrong with you people like oh i'm getting so sick i don't understand why because you're taking horse medicine yeah yeah but that's you know and those are the same people who cling to this you know belief of you know uh nationalism and you know folks who get upset about you know um like we're oh let's take down this statue of this confederate general who owned slaves and promoted racism but but wait that's part of our our history and our culture Mm -hmm. it's like well if that if that statue wasn't there would you no longer know these things would that like there are books there are museums like yeah we don't need yeah that's that's the thing like how can you fight with these super opinionated people while not being opinionated about them. It's very difficult because it's I've I've said for many, many years, I am I am fine if someone is just dumb, like they're not a smart person, because that's not something that you can control. You can't control your level of intelligence. However, willful ignorance is something that I cannot uh, abide. Because mm-hmm. if you have all the facts, and it's like, here is the information. And it's like, you know what? I'm still not going to look at that. Like the people who believe the earth is flat. Like, yeah. That yeah, I know. Out. I was going to say that. <laughs> it's, it's somehow, it's an insecurity. Um, and I try to stay really, really open-minded and try to flex my mind into that way, flex my mind into this way to understand where is this coming from? Because like people who are believing the f- earth is flat, they must have, you have to flex your mind in a way. And in that perspective, you have to be able to see what they are seeing. I haven't managed that. No. Um, but you have to be in a, in a contortion with the mind. And then maybe you can see what they're seeing. From I mean, some perspective, it should be seen flat. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, it's like there are tons of pictures of earth from space it's like show me a picture at the edge of the world just show just show me one yeah i'll be on your side that's what i'm saying it has to be another um window that's yeah we're not seeing i don't know i I really would that's the other thing we're so our communities are so separate from one another i don't know a single person who believes that the earth is flat i know they exist but i don't have a friend Therefore, I never have a heart-to-heart conversation. Tell me how. Um, because our communities, uh, either like on social media or actually in real life, we don't touch. We never come together. 
Yeah. So I am making my own imagined community and we're getting stronger in ourselves. And we believe I put a post on social media about something that I protest. Everybody says, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I can believe that there are 10,000 people who are on my side, whereas there is like another 10 million out there who is saying the opposite, but I never hear their views because I'm so isolated. Everybody, every, each one of us is so isolated in our bubbles now. We have to get out of our bubbles and try to mingle with the other bubbles yeah. in order to um, start some sort of a change. Otherwise, we're like pol polarized. Like it's this we and them becoming a deeper crack in humanity. Yeah, it is. There's, there's so many of these like different uh, schisms that kind of splinter off. And it's like, you know, there's like this underlying like willful ignorance but like it kind of spreads out to a bunch of different places and it's so difficult like you were saying to try and get yourself into that headspace where it's like no no i i believe in facts and i i you know this is documented you know like you're saying about smyrna like these are documented facts there are people who have told these stories but we're yeah all there is evidence there is yes but there are people who because they've only been exposed, like say somebody who lives in Turkey and like say they live in a, a small town and they never go anywhere. Like they live there their whole lives. They've been there their third generation. And like, this is what they're taught. You know, they could be, you know, engineers or scientists, you know, like they could be doing yeah, very well, yeah. but because they've only been exposed to certain things, it's like, well, this is always how it's been. Why would I think any other way? Exactly. Yeah. And it's you need to broaden your horizons, which is, you know, kind of like how I started this this show off about talking about different different writers mm -hmm. and different, uh, different uh, uh, subjects and things like I didn't know anything about Smyrna. I didn't know. I mean, I, I was aware that the Ottoman Empire existed, but all of this stuff is all new to me. So I was like, all right, I can't wait to talk to her about this stuff because I want to know more about it. Because um, clearly this is a, an actual event that happened. This is a yes. real thing. Because you wouldn't just make up, you know, again, like something we were talking about. It's like, oh, yeah, there was this huge fire. And it's like, no, that never happened. Like, you're just, you know, fabricating something. But, like, this is a real event that happened. Yeah. Well, I'm really, as an, as an author, I'm really obsessed about um, realism. Like, I want to have real details. Mm -hmm. So the background, the historical background um, is 100% true. There is not an invented character in the background in, among the historical figures. There is not an in, in, invented event that's taking place in the background. Whenever they're reading newspapers, the characters, whenever they're reading, I actually went to the archives and found that newspaper for that day and opened and looked at the headlines and say, okay, so Mr. Um, Yakumi, is reading this newspaper on the square chapter, I don't know, chapter 12. Um, I actually sold the newspaper. So I want to, I, especially when I was writing this book, I really wanted to stick with the real facts. But on the other hand, it's a novel. So it's not a history book. Um, and there was, I took great joy in writing the story, independent of the history, independent of the fire, independent of, um, trying to open the minds of people into different realities, whatever. There are characters, you know, they fall in love, they go to New Year's parties and they get 
too suntanned or they're left by their lovers. So I kind of enjoyed writing these things too. Um, and when I was writing the characters, I, even though they are living 100 years before us, I really wanted to find the universal element. Cats finally uh, looking. Yes, <laughs> I'm tired of no, being. The cats, they they are too impatient and they want to make themselves known. <laughs> yeah, my, my cat when I would be on, uh, uh, you know, conference calls and stuff, she'd climb up on the back and then like lay on my shoulders. That it's totally fine, and I think it's adorable. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, it's you know, your book is historical fiction, but I love the fact that you put actual events so it's grounded in reality, so people realize it's like. I can go and I can go to the archives like you did, and I can find that this uh, that this newspaper headline existed. I can find out that you know what they're reading about actually happened on this day in this newspaper. And to me, that just shows the dedication that you have to your craft and the, uh, like I was saying earlier, the the emotional attachment that you have to the subject matter. Uh, I think it's really refreshing and it's, you know, you're not just making this stuff up out of whole cloth. It's like, okay, you know, this, this fire happened and I'm going to center my story around this fire. Mm -hmm. Like everything else is made up. I love the fact that you have, you know, there's such an attention to detail that, you know, you're sitting there and you're reading and there are certain books as I'm reading them uh, and yours is one that as I'm reading them, I don't see the words anymore. I'm just seeing the story play out in front of me and yours is written that way. So I can just, Great. as I'm going through, like I know that I'm reading the words, but like I'm watching the events transpire. I'm seeing the fire. I'm seeing the horses leap into the water. I'm seeing these bloated corpses floating down uh, in the water around the ships as these, these children uh, in their red and green dresses are struggling to get to ships. Like I can see all this stuff happening. Uh, and that's just a testament to uh, your skill as a Perfect. writer. Perfect. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I know we've talked a lot about this, um, you know, but again, I, I'm really in, and I've I've only read, you know, uh, a, a small portion of the small book. Portion. Well, you know, um, so one thing about the book is Shehrazad is the narrator. Mm -hmm. um, and she tells from the very beginning, it's no secret, it's not a spoiler, but... Um, we don't know, and she's going to tell us the story, or she's going to tell you guys a story. And in that story, there are many women. And it's your guess, it's going to be a puzzle for the reader to find out which of these women is Shehrazad herself. So um, while you're reading, she's going to say, my mother. So you are going to realize that, okay, this is not her, because she's talking about her as my mother. And then there's going to be another a Turkish character and an Armenian character and then um, a Greek character. And you are going to um, bring the pieces together and let's see when you're going to realize which one of these ladies is Shehrazad herself. Yeah, and I think that's another brilliant tell, uh, storytelling device where, you know, it also keeps the reader engaged because you're like, oh, I think it's this. Oh, no, it's not that person. Yeah, it can't be this. It can't be this. Maybe she's going to come later. Well, maybe yeah. it's her. No, it can't be her. I like doing that as a as a reader myself. And um, I, I want to keep my readers together. Like, I want to stay engaged with them. I don't want to let them go. 
And I think that definitely, uh, like we were talking about earlier, that lends itself well to uh, a second and third read through where you go back and it's like, oh, okay, now oh, I yes. see, you know you're you have the the trail of breadcrumbs that you're le- that you're letting out and you uh, you know you're leading your your reader to a certain uh, destination, but they don't know it until they've gotten there, and then you know, on a second read through, like you can enjoy it a little more because it's like, okay, I know what this is. So now I'm going to look for these little clues, these little, these little hints. Like there's a, there's absolutely. A- I really hope the readers read it the second time and the third time, not immediately, but you know, over the lifetime, I don't think we should read like so many books. I think we should read the books we love many, many times. Yeah, and I can I can definitely say that there are there are you know fandoms where it's like oh I've read this book like six or seven times I've read you know <laughs> like the Harry Potter books or uh, Stephen King's Dark Tower series or you know A Song of Ice and Fire, and even with that you know like once you re- you know there are little breadcrumbs in those stories like there's a throwaway line in the first Game of Thrones book where you know one of the characters is like oh you know I she felt her heart had you know, turn to stone or something like that. And later on, she is reintroduced as Lady Stoneheart. Mm-hmm. But that's five books later. Later. <laughs> so it's like this tiny little thing and you read through it. And you're like, oh my God, he had this planned the whole time. <laughs> like, and I, I like stuff like that, you know, especially on, like I said, subsequent read throughs and you get to uh, experience it from a different point of view with with new eyes so to speak so you can still enjoy the story yeah you know writing a book is the same too when you're writing it for the first time it's like reading a book you don't know what's going to happen at least for me i don't plan anything i start writing i know i wanted to write about smyrna not even about smyrna i just i know i wanted to write a book that's taking place in old izmir in old smyrna but that's it I had no idea. I only had the Edith Lamarck character uh, in my mind, mm-hmm. uh, who is Shehrazad's mother from the very beginning. She tells us this. But then that's it. Like, I started from her. Later, the first chapter came, and Indian spy is arriving to Smyrna, um, Avinash Pillai. It, it happened later. <laughs> and and, and that, that was going to be uh, one of the, the, the last couple of questions I asked is, you know, when you write, do you ever find yourself being surprised? Like, you know, when I write, it's, I know where I'm going to start and I have a pretty good idea of how it's going to end, but I've been writing things and like, you know, wow, like this character did this and I had no idea. It's like, aren't you the one writing? It's like, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Put yourself into a character and you know what they're, you know, how they're going to act. Like sometimes they can still surprise you, like something they say or something they do. Absolutely. I I always have that. I finish a chapter and then I start a new chapter in my hand, right? I usually write with my hand at the beginning. Um, and I see my handwriting a, a completely different scene. It's the magic of it. Like I was just thinking about writing the next chapter, chapter, let's say in Istanbul, and then no, my hand says no. You're going to write it in Athens. It's going to take place in Athens. How? Like doesn't match with the earlier chapters. Doesn't matter. It will eventually. The story knows where it's going. You just have to. 
Exactly. Yeah, characters. I always see my characters as um, like they're alive somewhere. Not yeah. like I'm not saying like in another world or something. They're alive in my imagination. And you see, our imaginations, our minds are so wonderful. They create dreams. Mm -hmm. Dreams are so detailed, so colorful. So many things happen in dreams. Um, so any story we create, any novel we create is actually narrower than a dream. Mm -hmm. So if a mind is capable of creating dreams, of course it's going to create the characters who know what they want to do, but you don't know what they want to do. It's just like your dreams, your books, your stories. Yeah, it, you know, the, these characters are alive in your subconscious and you might, again, you might not know what they're going to do or what they're going to say, or you think you know, but... Uh... You know, they behave differently. You know, you don't, you don't know what's going to. It's again, you know, we'll we'll use a metaphor for what you're doing now, like you know, trying to predict the behavior of a cat. Yes, and no, you can't. <laughs> what is what is the cat's name? Millie. Millie. Milford. Oh, that's funny. My dad was actually born in a town called Milford. Really? So our Millie's long name is Milford Lynn. Very nice. Yeah, super <laughs> cute. So, I mean, I know we talked about that off air. You're like, oh, the cat's going to be here. It's like, that's okay. Cat's fine. You know, yep. cat. Um, so I know we've been uh, going for just about an hour and, you know, we chatted for a little bit beforehand as well. So I, I want to let you go because it's getting... Oh, it late. was such a joy. I don't want to go. <laughs> well... <laughs> Anytime you have anything else coming out, like you said, you've got more books coming out, you know, that you've written in the past that are finally getting translated into English. You have an open invitation. I would love to chat with you again. Thank uh, you. I'd love to be part of this program. But before we go, uh, where can folks find your work? Because uh, this book, I was uh, I was under the impression that it was coming out uh, September 1st. So by the time this airs, that would be tomorrow because the uh, the proof that I got said September 1st. Yeah, it's, a, it's bizarre. Um, I, actually, you can pre-order now. It will be out in the United States and in Canada on uh, 19th of September. Mm -hmm. But you can you can pre-order. Audible is already ready. I have friends in Portland, Oregon, and they said, they're, I were listening to your book now. So that means the Audible is ready. I think Kindle is ready. Um, and then if you have, it's very beautiful. They made an amazing... Um, job in the cover and the hard hardback copies are so beautiful. They will be available 19th of September. They can. Um, well, I'm I'm everywhere and I love to chat with my readers um, on Instagram, on Facebook. Defne Suman is my name. If they type type my name, I will just come up. I have a website beautifully made, um, defnesuman.com, um, and. And we're going to have an event, a live event, and I'd like to have all my readers to come and join me there. Uh, it's by the Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon. It's one of the biggest bookstores of West Coast um, of the United States. And funny enough, I wrote the book in Powell's Books. I was um, living in Oregon when I was writing this book. And because our apartment was so small, I was writing in the coffee shops of Portland that are like famous. Um, and I was writing in the, the the coffee shop of Powell's Books. So for a book lounge event, I picked that place and they were kind enough to say, yes, let's do it for you. 
That's very so, cool. Yeah, that's very cool. On the 21st of September, uh, I'd like to see everybody on Zoom faces as we do these days. Yes. But thank God we have it. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, the, the program we're using right now, you know, we have the, the video chat going like, I like this program. I actually pay for the, the, the premium version. You know, I'm not just being cheap and getting the, 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 <laughs> the free version uh, because I like this so much, uh, you know, for folks who are listening, StreamYard is what I use for all, you know, all of my uh, interviews with folks. Um, looking up on uh, Amazon, uh, yeah, I'm showing the, the Kindle and the audiobook. Uh, showing hardcover it's showing paperback um it doesn't say pre-order it just says i mean i suppose you know it's it's available in certain places like you said it's already uh in europe like you can yeah in in uk in europe uh, in australia i think you can buy um i i don't know what's going on but 19th of september for sure it will be out in the us and in canada Excellent. And uh, I highly recommend it. Like I said, I've had nothing but good things to say about it. Like the writing style is excellent. It's not, uh, you know, like we've we've discussed with some authors, you know, it, it it's 500 pages, but it's not 500 pages because you're taking 150 pages to describe five minutes of action where, you know, I bring up <laughs> the example of uh, Gerald's Game by Stephen King, where like the first 150 pages probably take place over five minutes. And it's like you can you can cut that down a whole lot. Well, <laughs> but this like there's no there's no wasted words, there's no wasted effort. Like everything serves a purpose, especially where you're saying you got you have you know the the trail of breadcrumbs sprinkled throughout the entire story to find out just who is telling this story. And I think that's brilliant. And I can't wait to get through it. And I can't wait to uh, tell you everything that I think about it. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. And um, the, about one uh, one last thing about the translation, I my translator is a is a wonderful woman, an English teacher who lives in Turkey, and we worked on this translation of the book chapter by chapter, actually word by word. We studied together and how we can translate it to English so it has the same feeling of the original. So it, it turned out to be a very, very good translation. Uh, and I'm very happy with that because it could be a nightmare for an author, the translation of your book. It might you know destroy everything. Um, so it's a very, very good translation. So whoever is interested in translated fiction, um, a good treat in terms of translation. I know, and that's something, uh, you know, just to kind of touch on that real quick, that's something we didn't even talk about is the fact that, you know, when you, translate something from one language to another like there's a lot of idiomatic expressions and things that just don't translate from one language to another and there are certain words and phrases that you know like uh you know just the way you were speaking like oh yeah this book comes out the 19th of september yeah, as opposed in because that's how in europe you guys write your dates it's you know yeah. 19 9 21 <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and over here, it's nine nineteen twenty one because we do everything backwards. But, you know, it's it's just like little things like that that don't always translate over. And I've had zero issue like, oh, this must be a translation error or mm -hmm. this must be like because it's coming from another light. Like I had no I had no idea that this was originally written in Turkish. No. OK, idea. cool. Well, the translator was a good one. I read everything in detail and, and ahead of Zeus, the, the publisher, 
worked mm -hmm. hard also in editing. They did um, a full-on um, content editing of the book. So a lot of work has been done, so you forget that it's translation. Yeah, and obviously you speak excellent English. Like you speak better English than uh, several people that I know. <laughs> Thank uh, you. And uh, I'm, I'm guessing that English is not your first language. No, no, Turkish is my first language. I, I learned English in Portland um, when I was living in Portland. Yeah, so you know, and yeah. again, you speak better than a lot of folks I know. <laughs> but uh, I want to. Uh, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, the Silence of Scheherazade, Daphne Suman. Uh, I can't recommend this highly enough. Like I think everybody should check this out. So thank you so much. We're gonna take a quick break, and then uh, I'll be back to wrap up the show and uh, give you an idea of what's coming up next. So stay tuned. Deadly Grounds Coffee knows how important your coffee is to you. Every batch is roasted to perfection with a unique special method that brings out the richest, deepest, smoothest flavor you'll ever find. We're coffee freaks too, and deadly serious about our brew. Just one sip and you'll know why we say, once you go deadly, you don't go back. It's truly coffee to die for. So when you're ready to get a little deadly, get online and order yours at getdeadly.com. It's coffee so good, it's scary. Greetings! We are the Retro Reductopus Cephala Podcast, the bi-weekly show that celebrates all the things that made growing up awesome. He's right. We wax philosophic about lots of geeky crap like old video games and movies, toys, cartoons. I don't know. Help me out here. Music. Pants. Quoting video games that don't have dialogues. Shabibers. Tasty news. Unnecessarily long Japanese onomatopoeia. Butt breathers. Uncomfortable nature facts. Or how to install a samoplange. And unlike all those other podcasts, we at Retroidocubus have an exciting rotating host schedule. Do we? We sure do. So if you didn't like the guy flapping his gums this week, like me, worry not, gentle listener. Next week, we'll have a whole new host. Of problems. Hey, they might still suck. But they'll suck differently. And you know what's really cool? Retroidoctopus is part of the Dorkening and Inebriar podcast networks, with new episodes every Tentacle Tuesday. Which is like every other Tuesday. We named it. Anyways, you can listen to us at iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or any podcast player cool enough to carry the only show that celebrates all things that make growing up awesome. I'm Matthew. I'm Jason. I'm Matteo. And we're Majama. The creators of Bad CGI Sharks. And you're listening to the Shark Bites Podcast. You're going to need a bigger boat. And I am back. I really hope you guys enjoyed that interview. That was a lot of fun. Um, and it's nice to get a perspective from somebody from uh, another part of the world where, you know, you know, I had a lot of questions for her and, and, you know, I was really interested to see how, um, you know, Turkey's school system and Greece's school system take the exact same, uh, event and how they teach that in class. So I thought that was very interesting and uh, I'm not at all surprised because that's generally the way things work. You know, like we said in the interview, winners write the history books and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, 
<laughs> it's uh, uh, it's generally not accurate. Um, but I do want to thank uh, Daphne again for uh, taking the time out of her day uh, because she is several hours and many time zones ahead of me. So uh, I appreciate her taking the time. And it was a really fun interview, and I would love to have her on again and chat with her again. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about is I wanted to thank uh, everybody who participated in the first uh, inaugural annual uh, Amalgamania podcast and entertainment awards. We had uh, a lot of folks working very hard behind the scenes to make this happen, uh, including Taryn and, and, and Coop and Jordan and Jordan and Ian and, and Colleen and all on uh, Steve. And I want to make sure I'm not forgetting anybody. Uh, all the other judges who participated, I forget who else was on there. I don't have a list in front of me. I'm just kind of trying to read it off the top of my head and uh, or, or remember it off the top of my head, I should say, not read it. Um, it went really, really well. Um, Leo ended up taking home uh, Best Host, which is awesome. He totally deserved it. Uh, Creator Spotlight won a couple of awards. Uh Best interview for the uh, episode uh, where we interviewed the cast of Grease, and that episode also got the best overall award. Uh, the uh, interview that we had with Jeffrey Voorhees actually won uh, best visual media, and best long form went to uh, the East Meets the West. Best short form went to um, uh, Splash Pages. Again, I don't have any of this written down. I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head. But, uh, you know, there was a little bit of controversy where folks thought that there was some sort of collusion going on because a lot of the shows were on the Dorkening Network and Amalgamania is affiliated with the Dorkening Network. But I can tell you for a fact that a lot of the folks who were doing the judging had no affiliation with either group. Uh, we were trying to reach out to impartial judges, and we did that. Um, and... It, it just, it happened to be what it was. You know, um, there were a lot of folks. We had over 50 submissions. Not everybody was going to be able to win. Not everybody was going to be able to be a finalist. But I still think it was pretty awesome. Uh, it went really well, and I can't wait to do it again next year. I thought it went went off without a hitch. Uh, Ashes and I were, were hosting it, and we were kind of, like, going back and forth, like, okay, how long is this going to be? Like, I think we can keep it around an hour and it ended up being like 35 minutes long uh because we just we were that organized we had it everything ready to go i had the stream yard stream uh if you missed it you can check it out on uh the amalgamania youtube page and uh also their facebook page and check out we have uh, a lot of folks who uh who presented awards as well including a couple very special celebrity guests so that was pretty awesome um I think that's pretty much going to be it. Uh, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Uh, I may have another writer to interview, but I may uh, I may snag another couple of guests to talk about some uh, some more random stuff. But we'll see what happens. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff that we're working on. Um, and of course, now is time for your your biweekly shark fact. Um, this is something that we were talking about, I think, in uh, the Geektopia Facebook group, which I highly recommend you join if you like geeky, nerdy stuff. There's tons of memes and random science stuff. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, the reason that people do not eat Greenland sharks is that their flesh is uh, 
essentially point like there's a way to prepare it but it's like more trouble than what it's worth but uh, there's a way to prepare it to remove all the poison because their flesh is full of urea yes yes it's pretty gross you don't want to eat them plus they're you know four to five hundred years old you you know they're probably past their sell-by date you don't want to you don't want to eat that anyways but uh, thank you once again for uh, checking out the show. I had a lot of fun with Daphne. I really hope that she enjoyed being on the show as well. And I think with that being said, uh, I will uh, bring this episode to a close. Thank you so much. And remember that while I am the podcaster, as the listener, you are my chum. Have a great week, folks.